Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Please join me as we light our chalice using the words we say every Sunday. We light this chalice. Now take a deep breath. After all the worry about weather, the threats of snowy storms, breathe in, still your body, and listen hard. See if you can hear the rain outside. There's nowhere to be, there's nothing to do. In this moment, all you need is to be here in your community, side by side, living, breathing, loving. Breathe and listen. I'm so glad to see you all despite the weather. The night before a storm up here in the Northeast, emails and text messages fly between your professional staff and your lay leadership as we weigh the dangers of encouraging folks to be on the road with our determination to always be here, open, ready to offer a place of respite. So I appreciate the challenge of uncertainty we faced it last night too, and I appreciate your commitment to being here. Just this past week, I was sitting in on a class at Union Theological Seminary, and a question arose among this small group of Unitarian Universalist students. We were discussing the relatively recently released numbers from the UUA. They were in a UU world from just, I think, last month. And then Peter Morales, uh, former president of the UUA, we were discussing his paper from not that long ago that described how he envisioned growth for the Unitarian Universalist Association. So the question that these students posed was, what is it that we are growing, preserving, doing at our congregations? What is the heart of what we do? What's the point? What is different and unique about Unitarian Universalist congregations? Why does it matter, they wanted to know, to be a Unitarian Universalist in a congregation rather than a Unitarian Universalist at large, just doing your thing on your own. The instructor and I, who both serve in congregations, had various answers to this question, but the one that stuck with me as I have moved through the rest of my week is this. At our best, here, we are creating a community of care and compassion, of welcoming and honoring, that is countercultural. It's a community that asks us to practice virtues that often stand in contrast with what our society asks of us. So often, we practice consumerism, but here, we're asked to practice participation and presence. 
So often we practice scarcity, but here we're asked to practice generosity born of abundance. So often we practice disconnection and isolation born of suspicion, but here we're asked to practice openness and vulnerability born of trust. So often we practice helplessness born of fear, but here we're asked to practice hope born of love. Being here, fully present to your community, completely embraced in your wholeness with your heart, your body, and your mind, that is countercultural work. It's the work of self and world transformation. It's work that we are held accountable for exactly because we do it together, not alone. So what we do here matters deeply. It matters that places like this exist. And it's possible for places like this to exist because of the dedication that others have shown for decades. And it will remain possible because of your commitment. It isn't easy work, but never once have I doubted the value of Unitarian Universalist communities like this. And never will I doubt the value of Sunday mornings and the presence here of each of you. So that's why those emails and those texts fly around. It's why we wait as long as possible to cancel services because we don't ever want to have to. We don't want to miss an opportunity to be together, working on ourselves, building our relationships, and planting the seeds that will help transform the world. So welcome on this Sunday morning that comes on the heels of uncertainty, as many of them do. May your time here be restorative and challenging and a meaningful reminder of why this community matters. Every Sunday that we gather to build community and to support one another, we take time to sit by side by side in silence with deep breaths, making room for each of us to use this time however best works for us. So as the rain comes down around us, I invite you to settle yourself into your seat as comfortably as you can and to take a deep breath in and let it out. Take another deep breath, slowly. This morning, as we come together, we offer sincere gratitude for the generations that have come before, generations that built movements for justice, that fought for a better future for all of us, that transformed the world and created communities that sustain and heal and hold. And we give them our thanks. This morning, as we come together, we also imagine with hope the future, the generations that will come when we are gone. Generations that will continue to insist on equality. That will increase the compassion and love in the world. That will make space for all people in the human family. That will keep transforming the world until all are healed and held. We think of them with hope. In the silence as we breathe, we offer each our own gratitudes and lift up our own hopes.
May we always give thanks for what has been and look with hope to what may be. And may our work toward transformation of ourselves and the world be done as it is done best in community. May it be ever led by justice and love. So may it be. As you all know, tomorrow is the day on which this country honors the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr. Across this country, folks will donate their time and skills, volunteering in their neighborhoods, and others will gather to worship. Others will take time out of their day to read or watch some of the words of this man that we celebrate. Martin Luther King Jr., a minister, an activist, a preacher, worked all his life to try and make this country better for all of us. And when we imagine him, when we lift him up, so often we do so as the epitome of nonviolent activism, as a stalwart and strong force for good. And he was those things. But he was also human, so he had moments of doubt that he spoke openly about. He was human. Sometimes he wanted change faster than it was coming. Sometimes he was angry. Sometimes he was disappointed in the slowness of this country and its people. He was human. We honor him tomorrow because, indeed, his movement alongside the movements of others and the work of others helped to change our world. Progress was made. And, and we still have such a very long way to go. The Reverend Dr. King wanted a wide net of freedom cast. He wanted that net of freedom to encompass all people. So do we. His work is not done. Our work is not done. It's really important for us to understand that. To know the history of what has been here in this nation and to grasp all the ways that we continue to fall short of his vision, but also of our own best American ideals and of the true justice that our Unitarian Universalist values call us to. A blog made the rounds this year among UU ministers in advance of MLK Sunday. It was written by Kim Hampton, who's a consultant and researcher on religion, race, and popular culture, on the nexus of those things. Hampton's blog was titled, Don't Preach King on King Sunday. And she wrote this, King Sunday is rapidly approaching, hence I need to ask white ministers to do something that would seem counterintuitive. Don't preach about Martin Luther King Jr. Instead, she writes, of preaching about King, preach about the things King would have preached about. The American Empire. Preach about the multi-headed hydra of materialism, racism, and militarism. Hampton recommended a variety of topics that would preach, including the shutdown, lifting up the unknown women of the civil rights movement, generations of movement makers before King from whom he learned. She reminded those reading her blog, too, that this year, 2019, marks the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in a British colony in North America, as she put it. And she reminded us that the, this year, 2019, is the 100th anniversary of the Red Summer, for those of you who, like me, were not really sure you knew what that was, I offer you a little bit of history via Wikipedia and the Equal Justice Initiative, the organization that produced this video. So you remember in the video when it mentioned that lynching continued well after the Civil War ended. The summer and early autumn of 1919 saw approximately 25 anti-black riots in major cities throughout the country. 
and also a handful of less urban places. Houston, East St. Louis, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Omaha, Tulsa, Charleston were among the cities in which the violence erupted. The Equal Justice Initiative um, shares the story in this way. They quote, in Elaine, Arkansas, whites attacked a meeting of black sharecroppers who were organizing to demand fair treatment in the cotton market. After a white person was shot, federal troops were called in to quell the violence. But instead, they joined the white mobs in hunting black residents for several days. More than 200 black men, women, and children were killed. That was in one location during this red summer. Across the country, hundreds of black Americans were killed. In the fall of that year, Equal Justice Initiative tells us, a report on the reasons and range of the Red Summer was prepared by Dr. George Edmund Haynes. He reported that, quote, the persistence of unpunished lynching contributed to the mob mentality among white men and fueled a new commitment to self-defense among black men who had been emboldened by war service. So what you need to understand is that in 1919, Many black Americans had come home from fighting alongside their white counterparts in World War I. Social and economic issues had intensified tensions as the country dealt with how to reintegrate these returning soldiers into the society and into the workforce, as well as with how to respond to perceived threats of communism and socialism. It was actually the civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson, who is the lyricist for our final hymn this morning, <laughs> who coined that term, Red Summer. So 400 years ago, human beings were enslaved, moved across the world to be trapped into centuries of generational oppression, violence, and horror. 154 years ago, in 1865, the 13th Amendment was ratified, making enslavement in its classic definition illegal, but allowing space for it as punishment for crime. 100 years ago, in 1919, tensions were high and blood was shed across the country as violence led to the deaths of hundreds of black people. 55 years ago, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed, ending legalized discrimination and segregation. 54 years ago, in 1965, the Voting Rights Act helped to curb efforts to prevent minorities from voting. That is a handful of dates that barely scratches the surface of the history of institutionalized racism in this country. And of course, some of those were good forward progress, but there is such a ways to go. Our video shows just how slow progress has been and just how stubborn ignorance and racism and prejudice and violence have been. Slavery becomes Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow laws become the school to prison pipeline that leaves one in three young black men destined to spend time in jail. The control of enslaved bodies becomes tacitly sanctioned lynching, which becomes murderous riots in which the state sides with and helps white people as they kill black people, which becomes young black men and children shot in the street with no repercussions for their killers. Gains have been made, like the Voting Rights Act, but those have met with attempts to reverse them on the grounds that racial discrimination no longer creates barriers as it once did. Only now, as in in December of 2018, did the Senate pass a law that would make lynching a federal crime. It took that long. 
Even to this day, tomorrow, a day set aside to celebrate the progress of racial justice and to celebrate a man who furthered it with his passion and commitment and doubt and countercultural resistance to consumerism and war, even that day in Mississippi and Alabama is shared with a day celebrating the General Robert E. Lee. Anyone who suggests that there are no societal or institutional or cultural biases against people of color is refusing to acknowledge fact. When you consider how short our history is and just how recently we legally permitted immoral and atrocious things with either open or hidden racism at work, it's hard to remain optimistic. King was optimistic, some of the time at least, in one of his most famous speeches given on the 25th of March in 1965 in Montgomery, Alabama, he said this, I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men, darken their understanding, and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? Somebody is asking, when will wounded justice, lying prostrate on the streets of Selma and Birmingham and communities all over the South, be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? Somebody's asking, when will the radiant star of hope be plunged against the nocturnal bosom of this lonely night, plucked from weary souls with chains of fear and the manacles of death? How long will justice be crucified and truth bear it? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth crushed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you shall reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In rousing speeches like that one, King showed an optimism, or perhaps better stated, a faith-filled hope that things would continue to get better. When he stood before people, trying to inspire them, he pulled on his own reserve of belief that the sins of this country could be overcome, and that humanity could achieve the peace and generosity and justice he was convinced was possible. But he also doubted. He doubted himself, and he doubted the path he was on. There's this one story that I always think of during this time of honoring King. I actually think about it all the time. During the Montgomery bus boycott, at one point, King was getting upwards of 40 death threats a day on the phone. It was late one night, and another call came in. He made himself a coffee, sat down at his table, and he spoke to his God. He worried that he couldn't go on, that he couldn't be strong. He worried that if he stood up in front of folks without strength, they would see it, and they would fail to find their own strength. So he spoke. And his God spoke back to him, and the message was, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. King doubted. He doubted, and he also understood that the road wasn't going to be straight, wasn't going to be easy, and he knew the potential cost. He knew what he was risking. That's, in his final speech, if you've ever heard it, something he acknowledged, he said, I may not get there with you to the promised land. He knew what he was risking. 
And that's actually the king that I think of most, the one of the him of those two stories, the one that is weary and worn, afraid for his family, afraid for himself, in some ways broken and lost and unsure of how to keep going. Unsure that his faith and his strength is up to the task of working for a promised land that he knew he might not see. The king who then did answer that call to prophecy, to love, to work, the call that his God issued to him. One of the central challenges to movements of change, to justice work, to even our mission to transform the world, is that communities may not want to be changed. Not everybody wants justice. The world may not want to be transformed. And even among those who want change, change is often so, so slow. It can be discouraging. It can be defeating. When we have those moments when we realize just how far there still is to go, when we realize there's so much more that we each could be doing, when we realize that we may not be here to see it get better. And now, y'all, this is where I would normally take a decisive turn to the hopeful, to remind you of the power of human goodness, the capacity we truly have to change the world. Normally, we would move together into the place of affirming the work that is yet to be done and that we can be part of doing it. But I have to say, I really struggled to find those words this week. The ongoing shutdown and the way that our politicians are negotiating for people's lives and futures and for, frankly, the soul of the nation. The president's mockery last Sunday, I don't know if you saw this, of Elizabeth Warren at the same time that he mocked two tragedies of Native American history. The video from Friday showing white teenagers, mostly boys, dressed with MAGA hats, mocking and harassing Native elders who were participating in the Indigenous People's March on Washington, D.C. Among those elders was Nathan Phillips, a Vietnam War veteran and a keeper of a sacred pipe who just sang in the face of their racism and hatred. Frankly, I'm sure there's a dozen other things from this week that if I had been able to keep up with all of it would have broken my heart even more. And then there's the millions of expressions of hate and prejudice and racism that go unchecked on both shadowy and open sites of the internet. All too often, it is hard to find the words of hope. They get clouded over by uncertainty. They get blown away by fear. We have those midnight chats with God or the universe or just with ourselves when we lay awake worrying about the world our children will inherit. Worried that we won't and even that they won't come to know a world of peace and justice and love. The challenges are very real. And sometimes the words of hope just don't come. And that's when I come back to the question those seminarians raised. When my hope fails, when your hope fails, when the darkness seems too dark, when we can't be strong, when we worry that our inability to meet the needs of this time will whittle away at our collective power, when we are crying out in discouragement and doubt and sorrow, Whether or not we have a God that speaks back to us, we have this. We have a weekly, constant, if we let it be constant, not just on Sundays, reminder that we are not alone, that we have a community that invites us to embrace a different way of being in the world, that we have a group of people waiting, waiting to be present to us, 
waiting to offer us hope when we have none, waiting to welcome us with all of our fears and our dreams of what could be, waiting to lift us up and also waiting to offer us a different path. Here, we find our answer to that middle-of-the-night crisis of faith, crisis of doubt. And that, that's the answer to what we're preserving on Sunday mornings with congregational life. We are preserving support and care and a call issued to live a countercultural life that works against all those things, those societal ills King would have had us cast off years ago. Oppression, disconnection, materialism, consumerism, warmongering, hate. We're preserving the message that there's another way. We're preserving a deep collective belief that even though we will have our darkest moments, someday good will come. We're preserving connection and community, the reminder that we are not in isolation, we are not separate, our lives are connected, that we do our best work when we stay in conversation and in community. We're preserving the absolute conviction that every day, presents a new possibility to create a better world, and that that work matters even if we won't be present to reap the rewards of that changed world. Each new morning, as we recommit to transformation and to communities that make it possible, the change for a better world becomes possible. This week, Mary Oliver died. Oliver was a poet beloved by many Unitarian Universalists, Her poem, Wild Geese, gives us that beautiful line that asks what we will do with our one wild and precious life. But there's another poem that I wanted to share this morning. It's called Morning Poem. It goes like this. Every morning, the world is created. Under the orange sticks of the sun that heaped the ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches. And the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. If it is your nature to be happy, you will swim away along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still, somewhere, deep within you, a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning. Whether or not you have ever dared to be happy, whether or not you have ever dared to pray. Oliver's poem reminds us that each morning offers us what it needs to, if we're willing to grab at that possibility. She reminds us that deep within each of us is a beast shouting that all we need is here, Her work contains a hopeful message. It asks us to live our best lives, even through moments of doubt. And that reminder stands alongside King's reminder that the truth will out, justice will prevail, and there will, perhaps in the long distant future, be true equality. Those two, Oliver and King, taken together, encompassing even in their hope all our fears— stand alongside our shared and deep belief in the importance of interconnection and the building of communities. You can doubt. We can doubt. We should. You can fear. We can fear. Why wouldn't we, given the state of the world? What we can't do is turn away, shut down, or isolate ourselves. 
In our hymnal is a responsive reading by King, which I'm going to invite you to do. It will be projected, so you don't need to get your gray hymnal out. You're going to do the italicized words. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. There are some things in our social system to which all of us ought to be maladjusted. We must evolve, for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. Before it is too late, we must narrow the gaping chasm between our proclamations of peace and our lowly deeds which precipitate and perpetuate war. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. Whatever mountains of fear and doubt and despair you bring, in this community, through your participation in it, may you always find a source of inspiration and hope and love. So may it be. And you can join us in the words for extinguishing the chalice, which are projected. We extinguish this flame. Burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. When you go out into the world, may you be ready to make the most of each day, and may this community long stand able to comfort and help hew out of mountains of despair great stones of hope.